Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Um, this is part one of a part three series that we will be doing on the DSM-5. Um, the upcoming changes to the DSM caused a firestorm of media coverage last week and brought a lot of panic to those in the autism community. You know, We can't say we didn't see this coming, but the release is not due until May of 2013, so it gives a lot of time for debate and planning. Um, one of the biggest factors is the... Um, Asperger's syndrome um, diagnosis being dropped from the DSM. And I will be speaking Wednesday night with um, Dr. Alan Francis, who was the chair of the DSM-4, and we will be discussing um, all of the aspects of the DSM, his major concerns, um, how it's created, and how he thinks it should be changed. Um, But for today, we are going to be focusing on um, autism. And I could not think of three more respected women to invite on than Dr. Temple Grandin, Diane Kennedy, and Rebecca Banks. Um, They are the authors of Bright Not Broken. They've been on the show before. And we are going to discuss in detail um, the concerns for people on the spectrum. So welcome, Dr. Temple and Dr. Grandin. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. Diane, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi, Diane. We're just waiting for Rebecca to call in. Um, You know, it's... There really is a lot of concern and a lot of confusion, and I'd like to start off, uh, maybe Diane, we'll start with you. If you could just tell us what the changes are that are proposed to be made and um, how that will affect diagnosis. Well, um, they are looking at um, one of the most major changes is in taking away some of the individual diagnoses that we've had, such as Asperger's syndrome, PDD, NOS, pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, which is typically what our, our higher functioning population receives. We're looking at making this in just an autism spectrum, which would range from low-functioning individuals through high-functioning individuals. And those changes are what are of the greatest concern. On one hand, this is a proper way of recognizing autism because there are no clear-cut lines of everybody having um, or where we can put people in individual boxes. However, the other concern is that we would make things too narrow and restricted and deny others uh, accessibility and deny them the opportunity to have autism as a diagnosis and therefore receive the supports and uh, services that go with that. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion. People, I'm not sure that everyone realizes that high-functioning autism and Asperger's are not the same thing. So can you just quickly tell us what the difference is? Well, um, I'm not sure that there is a difference. I think that's been a a heated, debated um, Mm -hmm. uh, topic for quite some time, as I'm sure Temple would agree with me Well, basically basically on DMS-4, on the existing guidelines today, the main difference is autism has speech delay and Asperger's does not. You know, and that's the thing that when you merge it all into one category, 
you know, that that whole, you know, speech delay thing is is no longer like a black and white divide between autism and Asperger's. I mean, the social parts of autism are um, are a true continuum. My biggest concern is not so much the change in the in what they did with the uh, autism stuff, but all these other new categories they've made made that people with autism could be just shunted off into things like oppositional defiant disorder, social communication disorder, temper dysregulation disorder. And they'll get shunted off into these new categories. Uh, and, and then, of course, um, the, the laws don't require those to be funded. Exactly. And it also changes services and, you know, and it changes the course of treatment um, if a uh, treating physician is really being bound or feels that they're bound by the DSM. Um, you know, my biggest concern um, are the kids that are um, twice exceptional, the kids that are misunderstood, um, you know, the kids that are really the, the shining stars of our future um, who may no longer fit the criteria. So um, could you just, just tell me first how losing this um, diagnosis would affect learning and services? My big concern also is the amount of drugs being given out. You see, the thing where atypical antipsychotics really work are things like, you know, the, the aggression outbursts. So if you end up making a category just for aggression outbursts, that makes a great avenue to sell more and more drugs. I'm appalled at the amount of drugs given out like candy these days. Atypical psychotics um, have four times the risk of causing diabetes and other metabolic problems, horrendous weight gain, a tardive dyskinesia. There is a place to use powerful drugs, but not in five-year-olds. In the last five years, I'm appalled that they managed to get Resuridol approved for, you know, for five-year-olds and are giving it out like candy. The responsible doctors don't do this, but the doctors that don't know any better are doing that. You know, which is why I think that it's so important that, um, you know, the, the dimensional aspect of autism is accounted for in the DSM because a lot of the behaviors that you're just talking about, the meltdowns, the rages, the aggressive behavior, could be better accounted for for sensory issues. Well, um, that's right. You, you know, so, you know, that's a concern because, you know, if you're going to shift the child over and take them out of the Asperger's category and now put them into temper dysphoric disorder or, you know, as you said, um, oppositional defiant disorder, you're really would, missing the key, the, the reason well, for the behavior. They mention, sensor, they mention sensory processing problems, but if it's anything, they need to create a new category on sensory processing disorder because that's Absolutely. something really real. Some people with autism have a very, very severe problem with it. Others do not. Things like sound sensitivity, visual sensitivity. Hello? Yes, hello. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know what that echo was. I don't know what that was. That, that's Becky. I think Becky has joined us, and I think that's okay. the classroom. <laughs> oh, okay. I apologize. Hi, Rebecca Banks. Thank you for joining us. Um, Diane uh, and, and Rebecca, can you um, talk to me a little bit about your concerns as far as educating? Because the, the Bright Not Broken is, is just an unbelievable book. Um, and, you know, it really does um, discuss how these children are misunderstood. And my concern is that we've worked so hard um, to really push for differentiated education for these children, for these really exceptional children, and how will that be impacted by the new DSM? Becky, you probably can answer that best, being that you are an educator. Well, in with the new DSM, um, well, first of all, 
I want to address the New York Times article very quickly and that a comment was made that, oh, well, the kids won't have to undergo reevaluation. But the fact is all students have to be reevaluated periodically through mm-hmm. the course of their education. <clears throat> and we know that this is a dimension or a, it's a dimensional and a spectrum disorder. And as a result, the, the face of autism changes through developmental, the course of the, develop, the child's development. So that um, there's a misnomer sometimes that people graduate and they no longer have Asperger's and they graduate into ADHD. But that's not the case. What happens is perhaps they develop some coping mechanisms that for a while may seem, make it appear that the child is more able to function socially and um, communicate more effectively. But in reality, the autism is still present. When a child loses this diagnosis, and with the um, the grading scale, the severity scale that they're proposing in DSM-5, when a child loses the diagnosis of, of autism, they're going to lose the supports in the classroom. So that what they will be classified, they'll be reclassified as a OHI, which is um, uh, other health um, issue. Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of it right now. But anyway, yeah. it becomes a behavioral issue as opposed to a neurologically based issue. Not saying that the behavior isn't neurologically based. Don't get me wrong. But for educational purposes, the, the child will be classified as having ADHD and other other comorbid disorders, if you will. But at that point, they're not eligible for the supports that a child who's diagnosed with autism gets. So we're not allowed to differentiate. We I can't one of the problems allow we've got. small groups. I think Go one ahead. of the problems we've got here is is you have diagnosis for for services and for out in the practical world, and then, you know, what's going on scientifically. And there's sometimes a real clash between, you know, what is, you know, like it is scientifically a true continuum, and, but then, you know, in the educational world, there's the whole issue of, of services. And again, I want to repeat, I'm very concerned about all these other categories like oppositional defiant, conduct disorder, temper dysregulation disorder, uh, social communication disorder that these kids can just be shunted off into. Well, t- Dr. Reggie, you were discussing that with me. That seems to be a really your main concern. That's my changes. biggest concern. So why don't you explain what that is and why it's so worrisome well, to you? The reason it's so worrisome is, um, okay, if the kid's labeled social communication disorder and the law says they have to give autistic kids services, well, they could just cut the funding for that kid. That's why I'm mm-hmm. concerned about that out in the practical world. And I'm also concerned about some of these disorders like temper dysregulation disorder and they they now get a drug approved for that. And there's so many drugs yeah. being given out like candy. I take uh, antidepressant medication. They they saved me in my early 30s. I was dying from panic attacks, and the antidepressants saved me. So I'm not against medication. I take medication, but I'm against that how it's just being given out like candy now to young kids. Well, that's you know another concern that I have about this incredible amount of additions to the DSM. I, I can't think of a person walking the face of the earth who isn't going to have a disorder. Well, after this it, it, it's comes just ridiculous. Out. There's not enough brain systems in the brain for all these disorders. Right. You know, <laughs> um, Rebecca and Diane, going back, I wanted to say that one of my concerns is that often when children are reevaluated, they say they've outgrown their disorder. And for today, we're speaking about Asperger's. But I think that really what's being lost sight of is the fact that it's because of this diagnosis and the importance of this diagnosis that they were given early interventions. 
and that they've gained coping skills and they've acquired the tools that they need. And that once these the, these accommodations are lost, it's going to be very difficult. It's not that these children have outgrown their Asperger's. It's that they've acquired the skills that they needed. Exactly. And also, Marianne, we can't um, negate the fact that when we identify these children at a young age through the therapies and interventions, the brain can be rewired. And when mm-hmm. we stop the therapies and interventions or, as Dr. Grandin says, when we bring in the medications, we don't know what we're doing to the brain. We know that at this point we're not providing the support that the young brain needs, but we also don't know what these medications may do to the gray matter that's developing in these well, children. Well, the problem so is if you give give a drug to five-year-old, it's probably going to permanently change the brain. And, you know, my basic take on medication is the younger the child, the more conservative you want to be on medication. Let's try some other things like special diets first. Fish oil supplements are getting some good science behind them now. How about more exercise? A lot of kids need to get out and to get a lot more exercise. That can help on a lot of behavior problems. And, you know, neuroplasticity lasts a lifetime. So, you know, what you're you're saying is very true. I mean, you know, obviously um, the effects from the medications on very young children is is a big concern. Um, But, you know, neuroplasticity lasts a lifetime and and the brain will change. You know, for for now we've really been speaking about the younger uh, population. But, you know, what worries me also are the older kids, the older teens, the ones who have had these services all these years, the ones whose parents have you know, put their heart and soul into these these kids, and they're now going into college. And they are at high risk for losing services that they're going to need to be able to succeed and become independent. Something well, the thing I'm saying... Oh, sorry. Marianne, I just wanted to add real quick, um, uh, and that goes to what you just said in your question before, the other importance of what this diagnosis has meant, whether or not it's an appropriate way to categorize, again, we tend to get lost in those issues that are really part of the DSM, but this has been so important, and I'm glad you brought up adults, for parents to have an understanding. We had um, a parent once tell us in the very beginning, what was it that made the most sense to you? How did this help your child? And they said, to finally have a body of information that helped me understand what my child's world was like and who my child is, how these things make them up, not just, and again goes to our book, not just their problems, but how unique and how just absolutely incredible and different that they are. These things have all been identified with being um, with with the information we've learned through Asperger syndrome, and I think that is one of the biggest things that's going to be lost, especially with individuals who can identify with. I finally understand. I'm not alone. I'm not. I'm not all wrong with my uh, difficulties. I have some extraordinary talents and abilities. So they have to be Half a Silicon Valley has got some autism or Asperger's. I mean, that's what I'm saying. These are these are are brilliant minds. You know, the 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 stigma has been fading, Um, and to drop Asperger's and just incorporate it all. I just want to read um, Roy Grinker. 
uh, who writes for the New York Times, um, wrote something that really caught my attention, and he wrote this. If you ask my daughter Isabel what autism means to her, she won't say that it is a condition marked by impaired social communication and repetitive behaviors. She will say that her autism makes her a good artist, helps her relate to animals, and gives her perfect pitch. And when I read that, it really struck me because that's really how these children need to see themselves. And right. for them to get there, they really need these supports. So what, are you, what, do you, what changes do you see um, that are proposed? Because, you know, I'll be speaking with Dr. Francis about, you know, listen, where is the science behind the changes? Um, you know, are there safety nets if it doesn't work out? Is there still time to change it? So what, I mean, uh, Dr. Grendon, I know that you spoke about the concerns about language um, communication, that the kids will be shuttled over there. Um, what is your concern? Is it Social that they will lose services? Disorder. Yeah, the big problem we got on services is there's kind of two kinds of kids out there. And I've been going and visiting a lot of autism schools lately. You've got the kids that are much more handicapped. They've got the speech delays. The kids that if you work with them, they'd be able to do a simple job, but will always have to live in a supervised living situation. Then you've got the smart, bright kid kind of kid that Diane talks about in Bright Not Broken that um, uh, you know needs a science teacher like my science teacher to get them motivated. There's kind of you know two different kinds, and and um, you know the social aspects of autism are a true continuum. You know then you get sensory stuff that 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 you know is a mixture. Then you get speech. Some kids have speech delay, others don't. I think the new diagnosis is going to really wreck interpretation of scientific research where they studied autism or Asperger's because the speech delay, that black and white line on that's taken out. And I think there are some differences based on the, based on the, uh, on the, on the speech delay. Uh, the other thing I find working in a technical field is there's Aspies all over it. And, uh, and they're having, you know, they, they managed to keep their jobs, but they're having a lot of social problems with their marriages. In fact, we're coming out with a book this summer called Different Not Less, that's yes. on old Aspies that made it, and the reason they got a diagnosis was because their marriages and their relationships were a mess. Um, you know, and then they could understand you know, why they had the problems they had. And most of their problems were the social aspect. You know, they did not have speech delay. Right. And, you know, that actually was one of the things I have on my outline to discuss, so I'll jump ahead and then come back. You know, another everyone is looking at this as how it's going to impact children and teens. But in the reality, in, in this generation, a lot of adults are finding that they're on the spectrum through their child's diagnosis. That's right. And that will affect them as well. That's right. I, I have parents come up to me all the time. They think they're on the spectrum also, and and uh, you know, learning about autism has given them insights. I've had wives of engineers walk up to me in the airport and say, your book, Thinking in Pictures, really helped me because now I understand my engineer uh, husband and it saved our marriage. Right. Um, Diane and Rebecca, I wanted to ask you, with autism being so dimensional, um, having so many different aspects and so many different subgroups, how really could a manual account for all the different criteria and what is the criteria that's going to change that is most concerning to you well go ahead becky i was going to say that first of all um no manual can account for individual differences um we're we're as varied as individuals um in the human race and within the autism spectrum they're varied they're pulling out tendencies um 
and common patterns of behaviors and deficits. I think the one that really bothers me is the stereotyped um, repetitive patterns of behaviors and um, that's because in our higher functioning population, a lot of those patterns tend to be internalized or not so obvious. And so that when um, a parent or an individual is answering a questionnaire, um, an interview schedule about, about the patterns and behaviors, if it, we're not talking about things as obvious as head clapping or, or toe walking or, or things like that or head banging, but we can even talk about, um, and we make a case in the book, how several experts in autism believe that um, OCD and autism go hand in hand, and that is a form of almost internalized repetitive mm-hmm. behaviors and thinking. So um, right. that that's a concern that um, when they drop, well, when they add that as one of the, the qualifying criteria that we're going to, so many of our higher functioning kids aren't going to qualify or individuals won't qualify because um, most people don't associate repetitive thought patterns with repetitive patterns of behavior, you know, but asked, we uh, act had, on our thought patterns. I had had Dr. J- uh, James Copeland on, and uh, that's exactly what I asked him, is that, you know, with such a fine line, um, you know, these kids are often misdiagnosed with um OCD when it's Asperger's or get diagnosed mm-hmm. with Asperger's when it's OCD. It's it's so, it's so confusing. And what did he have um, to say about that? Um, you know, basically what he was saying was that it, it, there are different uh, criteria that you would make the decision. Um, you know, so there would be other, there would be social deficits. There would be, like you said, language skills. Um, so, you know, really it's a very subjective type of thing. You have to look at the whole child and, and try to sort it out because it can be very confusing. Well, the problem I found in, t- in traveling all around the country is that on the present DMS-4, I mean, half the time the kids aren't even diagnosed correctly. They don't follow the behavioral profile that's in the DMS-4. I've seen kids labeled Asperger's that could barely talk. And that's mm-hmm. totally contrary to the DMS-4. They don't even read the guideline. Well, you know, Dr. Alan Francis has gotten a lot of grief. Um, you know, he was very outspoken um, that he had some regrets about his putting Asperger's in. And when I interviewed him, we did not discuss autism. We discussed bipolar disorder. But one of the things that really um, he stressed to me was his what really made him have regrets is that it wasn't being adhered to to the way it was supposed to and that it had led to he had felt overdiagnosis. I disagree. I applaud him for putting uh, Asperger's in. But um, that it led to children being diagnosed and treated with these um, very powerful medications when that was never the intent of what he had written. Well, I think the so, medication you know, thing is a whole other issue. But... Right. Diane, did you want to add to this um, your concerns and um, about the changes? I did. I did, and I had a question, and, and Rebecca and I were discussing this the other day as we as we saw this unfolding with the the controversies that are starting to ignite. And and I first of all want to say, Marianne, that you your comment um, in your blog about this was 100% right that you saw this coming as the as the biggest controversial issue of 2012, and we have as well. It's why. Um, when we were putting the material together for this book and in our last book, uh, The ADHD Autism Connection, we felt like this issue about the DSM underlies so much of this. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to say now that 
that we were discussing is we've got to take this in perspective that we're not just talking about the problems of making a change. We've got to understand we're dealing with a with an inherently flawed system, which at the professional level really has been a contentious issue, even Absolutely. since DSM four. Alan mm-hmm. Francis himself, Dr. Francis, admitted that in the in the introduction and a lot of parents don't you know don't have a DSM four on their on their shelf so they may not have saw this information but they don't in in the beginning they uh, he, they he discusses how there are several people at the professional level saying this system may have outlived its usefulness the classification yes. a model may not be working it is inherently flawed and i think when we look at that we're attempting to modify a flawed system so it's not just the changes it's the fact that we're trying to put changes onto something that may have been a cardinal error, right, to start with. Well, I'll That's say he really has sent me an outline for Wednesday night that is just unbelievable. Um, so <laughs> all of this is going to be discussed. Um, you know, I wanted to to talk about parents. There's a lot of panic. You know, you go on, every parent is writing a blog, every parent is worried and concerned, and, you know, I can't, I can't tell them not to be. Um, but what I can tell them is don't panic. Um, but what in, what advice would you give to parents right now? One of the biggest advice I would give I would give to parents is don't get hung up on the labels. I have parents oh, come up to me and go, "Is the kid autistic? Is he Asperger's? Is he ADHD? Is he um, PDD?" You know what? Forget about the labels. Let's discuss what his actual problem is. Does he have a sensory mm-hmm. problem with fluorescent lights? Does he have a problem with a social communication? Uh, does he have a problem with, uh, you know, aggression? Let's discuss the actual problems and then step-by-step step fix the actual problems. But I find that people get, their minds get totally tied into the labels, and they just can't get away from it. And, you know, I think that what, what, what ends up happens is parents wind up putting on blinders, and they see their child, they see a diagnosis. That's and right. you shouldn't well, see a diagnosis. And, you should see the kid. And when you talk about the revisions that are proposed, and you take a child who's who right now has an Asperger's diagnosis but may not qualify under the new guidelines, and suddenly we're splintering them into ADHD and social communication disorder and, and OCD and anything else that may come along with with uh, the profile of the child, and we're we're taking away something that's essential to who they are, the autism that gives them the creative abilities and their some of the the wonderful gifts that they have, and we're relegating that to is this your social communication disorder? Is this your ADHD coming out when your behavior right. is and to be frustrated? It. Right, and we we do it now, but I see the potential for that becoming worse. But I also wanted to address the parent issue that Mm -hmm. I want to encourage parents not to panic, but instead to inform themselves right now about their children's diagnosis under the current criteria, what are the biggest issues that led to that diagnosis so that when they go speak with their treatment professional, it doesn't mean that immediately the child will lose the diagnosis, but as they speak to the treatment professional, should these guidelines go through, that they can perhaps have um, a method for educating the professional on their their child's individual behaviors and uh, perhaps having a case for 
retaining a diagnosis that could stand and that may allow that student, that college student, the high school student, to retain the services that they're the, and the accommodations that they're used to. It all depends upon the anyone. state budget. I travel all around the country, and there's a big difference, like in the number of attendance people at autism meetings. I know that has to do with the with the diagnosis, and uh, you know they're going to shunt them off into these other categories because then they uh, they they cut they've got funding cuts. You know, and this is right. just the reality right. in the That's field. True. There's a big difference between between diagnosis for science and diagnosis for the practical world. Right. You know, right. I just well, wanted, you're mentioning um, Pricey and Dr. Um, David Kupfer, who is the um, chair of the DSM-5, wrote about Asperger's. We have to make sure not everybody who is a little odd gets a diagnosis of autism or Asperger's. He continued to say, it involves a use of treatment resources. It becomes a cost issue. He actually came out yes. and said that. Yes. And they're going to so, hinge it on levels of severity. And the problem mm-hmm. is, how do we know when functioning is impaired, especially when you're talking about bright, gifted people? How can you put a price tag on that? Right. Um, and, you know, I really hope that who's really paying attention right now are the school districts because yes. they really need to get their ducks in a row and have a plan in effect for these kids so that they don't fall through the cracks. The other thing I want to end up saying before we get off the air is uh, I work in a technical field. So I see one Aspie uh, that ends up working for Silicon Valley or he runs the entire engineering department at a large meat plant, and then I see another kid end up on Social Security playing video games. It makes me crazy, and they are the same kid. One goes to Social Security, another one gets an engineering job or an art job or something mm-hmm. you know, good like that. Um, and, they're, and they're the same exact kid. We've got to start thinking a lot more when kids get into middle school, training for job skills. Kids aren't learning work skills. And in our book, uh, Different Not Less, uh, we got 14 people that were diagnosed with autism spectrum later in life. Just about every single one of them had paper routes when they had a kid. Well, we don't have paper routes anymore, but we got dog walking. We got to start teaching middle schoolers work skills. Okay, you maintain that church website. You got to do it every week and make sure it's not full of typos and learn that um, you know how to do work. And mm-hmm. and and uh, we're not doing enough thinking about what are they going to do after college. I'll tell you one place where there's a ton of jobs: the two-year careers, things like certified welder, things like diesel mechanic, uh, mm-hmm. electricians, plumbers, uh, machinists. We have jobs for these two-year degrees that they do in the community colleges. Now, they are regional. You may have to move, but we need to start thinking about what are they going to do when they grow up, and we're not doing enough on that. Right. The parents are not taking advantage of enough of the resources. Uh, Ladies, we're coming to the end right now. Uh, I just want to say, you know, that, um, you know, a child's accommodations and their health coverage. I mean, basically, getting a diagnosis other than getting accommodation services and for insurance coding, it really is not as important as parents think. Yes, it's important because you will need it for the services, but you know, getting the the diagnosis is just the beginning of the journey. What really is important is treating the symptoms. So parents need to really start as Dr. Granton said, not getting hung up on what the diagnosis is, but getting more involved in what are the difficulties, where are their competencies, focusing on their gifts. Um, you know, and parents need to become educated. That's what you know, reading through the changes, reading some of the articles that are coming out, but don't panic because 
Oops, I'm sorry, I got taken off there. Uh, don't panic. Don't panic yet. And um, as I said, we're going to be bringing on Dr. Alan Francis, and we will also, the third part is we will be having a member of the DSM-5 task force joining us as well to explain the changes to quell the panic. So any final thoughts? Mary Ann, I'd like to add one quick thought here. Um, in with you saying with the panels, a person who is so under uh, represented is Dr. Lorna Wing and Judy um, Judith Gould. Dr. Mm-hmm. Gould, they were the original pioneers of um, the information when autism was first put into the DSM, and they are also the pioneers. And this is the part that makes them really the go-to people for all of this information right now. They are the pioneers of the concept of a dimensional system. All of their uh, their tools, they've got a tool where they can identify the diagnoses, and their tool is based on the skills as well as the deficits. And that is how they promote, how we treat, how we do intervention. And they've been shouting from the rooftops in Great Britain, unfortunately, not here right. <laughs> where the DSM is. But they're they're undervalued. I'd love to see you um, have have them on and join this discussion because they. I was just. Have a I lot actually was just reading uh, as I was doing my homework last night. I was just reading about their work. It's funny that you said that. But listen, we, we've made great strides for these kids. Um, the understanding for these children, the accommodations for these children, we're on the right path. Let's hope we're not going to be taking steps backwards, and let's just be educated and prepared. So I want to thank you for joining us. I will be back Wednesday night with Dr. Alan Francis. Thank you to Diane Kennedy, Rebecca Banks, and, of course, Dr. Temple Grandin. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Diane? Diane? No, I mean... um, uh, uh, Miss Russo, you still there? Hello? Oh, I don't think she is, Temple. Who's still on the line? Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.